Brittany Martin. Um, I am a editor emeritus, I just got that title, at feministing.com, um, and the author of five books, um, including probably most relevant to this panel, Do It Anyway, The New Generation of Activists, which came out last fall. Um, I also do a lot of freelance writing and speaking um, about issues pertaining to most often activism, feminism, etc. So it's a. I'm also, by the way, a Barnard class of '02 graduate. So it's a, a massive thank you, massive honor to be here um, at the place where a lot of the beginnings of my sort of writing, uh, new media, and feminist activism started taking um, seed and. So, you know, it just feels like sort of a homecoming in an appropriate way to tease out some of the, these ideas. Um, I know there are some, some new media folks in the house. I wanted to make sure you see that these are all of our panelists' handles if you want to live tweet about what we're doing. And, of course, the general um, info for this conference at the top there. I'll put this back up a little bit later, um, so no need to feel like it's uh, going away forever. But I want to um, just ground us a little bit first. Um, in an increasingly decentralized feminist movement, I think you know our opening speaker really brought this point home in a very international way. Um, let's imagine sort of this big worldwide web of community organizers, public intellectuals, policymakers, new media and online organizing has really become the central node, that's how I think of it, or a series of nodes that keep, keeps everyone connected, right? So all of these social justice folks all over the world, particularly all over this country, I think a lot um, in terms of our sort of local issues and challenges, new media has become the megaphone for all of that work. Um, and I think there are a lot of misperceptions about what feminist blogging or online organizing is. So I want to just be very clear as these things sort of come up in this, in this conversation. Um, first of all, about what it is not. Um, it is not all women writing about their sex lives, uh, although that does happen, right? And there's a really important place for that, personally, especially when we think about sort of the legacy of personal as political. There is some very personal blogging, um, but I think it's often linked to some really important political issues, some action. Um, unfortunately, there's been sort of this parody that keeps getting recycled in the media that blogging is about, you know, young women in their pajamas writing about, you know, what they had for dinner last night or who they went on a date with. Um, and in fact, it's much more complex than that. Uh, another big misperception that blogs are just sort of rampantly erroneous. The truth is that, that the new media space actually creates more accountability in some ways than the old media space did. When you had to publish a retraction the next day, and would anyone really read it, right? That is in contrast to today, you have hundreds of commenters who are immediately holding you accountable for the accuracy or inaccuracy of what you're saying. And there's an edict in the blogosphere that you actually cross out. You don't delete mistakes you've made, but you literally cross them out so people can see on the screen that you have changed that specific thing. So th there really is an effort to have more accuracy among um, bloggers and new media writers. And, and also the other biggest misperception, I think, is that uh, online work, writing, new media is, is somehow going to replace on-the-ground activism or that anyone would, would perceive it that way. I think, in fact, it really operates in conjunction. There's this beautiful marriage that I see kind of springing up spontaneously all the time of new media writing and on-the-ground activism. And I just wanted to give you one little example of that that could sort of um, you could sort of latch on to if you haven't been as familiar with this space. Um, do folks remember when this billboard went up in Soho? 
Um, you know, there's been this pretty widespread effort to kind of racialize the anti-choice movement in really disturbing ways. So this uh, billboard was a prime example of that, went up in Soho. Um, we at Feministing blogged about it, and we included a really critical excerpt from an amazing organization called Sister Song um, in conjunction with the Trust Black Women Partnership. That, that little uh, paragraph I want to read to you. Yesterday, racist billboards went up in Soho attacking black women and our human rights by claiming the most dangerous place for an African-American child is in the womb. Sister Song, a, a coalition of 80 women of color and indigenous women's organizations, denounces a cynical attempt to use race during Black History Month as an excuse to assault women's rights. Black women are not the pawns of these white people who erect such billboards. We find them offensive, racist, sexist, and most of all, disrespectful of our decision-making, our 400-year history of raising and caring for black children, and our human rights to make health choices for ourselves. Damn, right? I love that paragraph. It's so beautiful. Anyway, we were able to sort of post this at Feministing, where we have a pretty wide readership, quote this incredible press release from Sister Song and Trust Black Women Partnership, a bunch of other blogs, a bunch of other um, really prolific tweeters picked it up, and the next day, Lamar, which is one of the biggest advertising um, companies in this country, took this billboard down, right? Yes, very exciting. Here's, here's the post. Um, this was also right around the time that there was the Planned Parenthood rally down in, New in uh, uh, near City Hall in New York City, and we were also blogging a lot about trying to get people down to that on-the-ground um, action, and this was sort of how it was framed at the time. And I loved that at this action, there was this um, awesome guerrilla reconsideration of this. The most dangerous place for an African-American is in the House of Representatives. That's racism. So anyway, I just kind of love this progression of like going from that billboard where people could have conceivably felt so disempowered and manipulated and misaligned to this billboard, which is like this great sort of um, uh, reclaiming of our own space and our own tools that we have at our disposal now. Um, so let me quickly go through the structure of our time together. Um, I am, you know, doing my little intro here, and then we're going to go to hear from some really um, important new voices in this space in, who, who occupy a lot of different um, sort of genres and a lot of different approaches. Um, all of them kind of under this big tent idea of sort of feminist, intersectional feminist activism, right? Um, so each one of them is going to present to you for five minutes. So I've asked them to answer these three questions in, in hopefully very brief terms. Um, what is one thrilling success you've had at the intersection of writing, new media, and activism? What is one good failure? Those who know me know I'm a huge fan of failure, so I had to ask my good failure question. And what is one question you're still living your way into? Um, I, I feel really strongly that, you know, we kind of all walk around with these hunches and questions, and the more that we can share them out loud in spaces like this, the more that we can sort of affirm each other's hum hunches or complicate them and, and keep the feminist movement really alive um, and crossing all of the kind of borders that uh, we were talking about earlier. So we're going to do that. We're going to hear from each of the activists. And then on the panel, activist writers, they have many roles. Um, and then I'm going to ask a few questions of them. And then we're just going to open up to the audience because we'd really love to have it be as conversational as possible. Does that sound good to people? Structure works? All right. Um, so... We're going to launch right in here. Ileana, do you, are you down to go first? I'm down to go first. All right. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw these up. Ileana's actually going to do some um, internet stuff, so she may toggle back and forth between these two. But first, I want to introduce her. 
Um, for the past 15 years, Ileana Jimenez has been a leader in the field of social justice education. She is a 2011 recipient of the Distinguished Fulbright Award in Teaching. Her research in Mexico City focused on creating safe schools for Mexican LGBT youth. In 2005, she founded the New York Independent Schools LGBT Educators Group, providing educators professional development and networking opportunities. At the Little Red Schoolhouse and Elizabeth Irwin High School in New York City, she offers electives on feminism, LGBT literature, Toni Morrison, and writing memoir. Don't you want to take every single one of those? They sound so and, and Ileana has this awesome line of supporters, aka students, in the front row. So we are so happy to have them here. Yes. Ileana is also an associate faculty member of Bard College's Institute for Writing and Thinking, where she offers workshops to classroom teachers and college instructors on writing-based inquiry. She's written about education issues for Care 2, Feministing, Gender Across Borders, Huffington Post, Ms. Magazine Blog, etc., etc. Um, she went to Smith, another Smithy in the House undergrad, um, and got a master's in English literature at Middlebury College. And on a personal, no personal note, I have just so admired watching Ileana move through the world. Usually it's online, by the way. Um, she's digitally moving through, the, through my world. But she has really carved out what, for me, has been a really new concept of how do you bring feminism to younger and younger ages? How do you talk about gender and race and class and all of these intersections really early on so it doesn't have to be a light bulb moment once, you know, you turn 25, right? That we should really be starting these things early. And I just have such deep admiration for the work that she does, so I'm honored to introduce her here. Thank you, Courtney. This is very exciting um, for many years now. I'm a New Yorker, so for many years I've been coming to Barnard and particularly the, um, the Barnard Center for Research on Women and have attended various events, panels, and um, never imagined myself actually being on a panel at Barnard. I kind of feel like it's a massive, massive place to be in terms of the kind of work that I appreciate, admire, and respect. So this is, this is a really, I feel very honored right now. Um, I also want to thank my students for sitting in the front. This is my high school feminism class, and they're, they're, they're sitting in the front. Um, they are really fierce and fabulous. The title of the course is Fierce and Fabulous Feminist Writers, Artists, and Activists. And one of the things I did early on was I changed the, 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 the title used to be actually Fierce and Fabulous Feminist Women Writers, Artists, and Activists. But as I started teaching the course, every year boys have signed up and I realized that um, the place of young men is extremely important in this conversation, and uh, there's never been a more important time to engage them. And I'm just, I'm personally proud that every year there's a boy in the class, this year there's one. And um, so it's happening. We're teaching boys feminism, and they're, we're, they're right there with us. Um, so my personal role um, as a feminist teacher is to bridge the gap. Um, so often, um, students will, college students will say, I wish that I had learned this in high school. That's what, I'm, that's what I feel my role is, is to be able to bring gender studies, feminist studies, but not just those two things, but ethnic studies um, to the high school classroom. And I think that's where we need to begin. If anything, we need to begin much younger in lower and, and middle school, all, th all the way through high school. Um, so the question that 
Um, Courtney asked, which is, what is one thrilling success that I've had at the intersection of writing, new media, and activism, is, to me, the philosophy of the course. For me, I, when I teach feminism, I, I don't necessarily teach one solitary um, idea or concept of feminism. If anything, it's a feminism's course. And I really want to teach young people that there are different manifestations of feminism, everything from the academy, such as the theoretical talk that we heard this morning, but also the activism, also the art, also the media. In every way that it shows itself, um, that's what I really want my students to learn. So I want to be able to show them those different faces. Um, as far as a success, when I first started teaching this course, a girl in the class said, I don't really see feminism. I asked, I asked the class, why are they taking this course? And she said, I don't really see it. And I think what she was referring to is she wasn't seeing the kind of Bella Abzug hats or anymore. She wasn't seeing, um, you know, like uh, marches in the street. She wasn't seeing what she saw as kind of historical second wave feminism taking the streets. Um, and this was just a few years ago. So I, I decided that what I really needed to do with the course was to bring that intersection of writing, new media, and activism together. Um, so an example of that is we partner with an organization called GEMS, Girls Educational and Mentoring Services, and they work to end CSEC, which stands for Commercial Sexual Exploitation of Children. And one of the things that we do is we watch the film, uh, the documentary, Very Young Girls, in class. This year we're also going to be reading Rachel Lloyd's uh, memoir, Girls Like Us. Um, outreach workers from GEMS come into the classroom and... Uh, talk to the students about CSEC, um, kind of show them a variety of different statistics on, on the issue. And then that's not all. There has to be an action step. So the students then rally together. They write a script, um, and they put together an assembly every year. We've done it now for three years. as an annual assembly now. Um, they get up on stage, and they teach their entire high school peers, ninth grade through 12th grade, all about commercial sexual exploitation of children. Um, and that entire assembly ends with, it kind of culminates with a call to action. And the first year that we did it, um, we asked GEMS what they needed, and they said they needed baby clothing for the babies that the girls, the young women at GEMS were having. And we, within 24 hours, not only students, but faculty and the principal brought in a whole load of donations for GEMS. The following year, after our GEMS assembly, um, our community service roundtable, um, which is a, a community service uh, club at our school, but it's not just community service. It's, it's kind of like a philanthropy club, club, actually. They raise a lot of money to give to um, a particular group in the city that focuses on children's issues or children's rights. Um, and so they were so moved by the second year of the GEMS Assembly that they decided to raise money, dedicate their annual coffee house fundraiser to GEMS. Um, and we, we raised the money, we sent it to GEMS, and from there we continue to have a relationship. And this year, Rachel Lloyd is actually coming. She's the executive director of GEMS. She's coming to the school to give an Oprah-style like um, assembly where the feminism students right here sitting in the front row will be interviewing her on stage um, and talking about her book with the entire school. Um, so that is one example of, an ex of a success. And then 
I don't know if I don't have time for a second, but the I don't have time for a second. <laughs> during but during the um, during the follow up Q and A, um, I can certainly share more about how we've partnered with other other organizations such as Hollaback and um, kind of mobilizing young people to talk about street harassment, blog about it, and also share their testimonies online and at political hearings. Thanks. Eliana, I'd actually love you to go to your second and third, um, the second and third questions okay. now. Yeah. Great. Um, as far as a failure, for me, the failure is between the academy and secondary education. Um, there's, a, there's a massive failure between higher education and secondary education or even just K through 12 education to have a conversation between itself. Um, I think the reason why we don't see a lot of women's studies and gender studies and ethnic studies taught, I mean, look at the attack on ethnic studies in Arizona. Um, to me, that is the biggest example of how high schools and middle schools are being attacked for teaching content that is so important to young people. Um, so the failure really is why aren't we having more conversations between higher ed professors, scholars, but also activists and teachers. How can we make those isolated circles overlap with one another? Um, I think about all the different kinds of pedagogical seminars that are taught to higher education women's studies courses. They're all directed at women's studies courses in college. Why can't we have a pedagogical class about how to teach it in high school? Um, how to teach it in elementary school. I mean, that to me would be so much more powerful um, if we did it that way. Um, so that, that I see not only as a failure, but a rich opportunity. And then finally, the third thing, what's a, what's a question that I'm moving into? The question I'm moving into is, is just an extension of what I've just said, which is how do we make these three isolated circles move together? In my own teaching as a feminist teacher, teaching in high schools, I invite scholars, activists, to the classroom to show them different manifestations of feminism, and I wish that we could do that across the board. How do we move that on a kind of more national level, talking about how we can bring this conversation um, to, younger, to younger students? Awesome. Thank you so much, Juliana. Um, now we're going to actually move to Mandy, who's right to my right here. Mandy Van Dieven is a writer, grassroots activist, and the co-author of... Hey, Shorty, <laughs> a guide to combating sexual harassment and violence in schools and on the streets, which I reviewed at Feministing, if you want to take a look. She has worked in New York, Atlanta, and Kolkata, India with community-based organizations such as Girls for Gender Equity, Blank Noise Project, and Youth Pride. Mandy has spoken to audiences nationwide about issues such as contemporary feminism, street harassment, youth organizing, and gender-based violence. Her work has been featured in national and international media outlets, including Alternate, Salon, Marie Claire, Color Lines, and the Women's International Perspective. Take it away, Mandy. Thanks. Um, so... Clearly, my thrilling success is to have had the opportunity not only to have co-written a book um, about Girls for Gender Equity, but also to have worked with Girls for Gender Equity for the past uh, eight years. So, you know, I came to media from a pretty non-traditional place. Um, I didn't go to school to be a writer. I didn't intend to be a writer in any sort of way. I actually intended to, you know, be a revolutionary activist that was changing the world. Um, 
And so, you know, coming from, I grew up in Georgia and I went to college in Atlanta. So coming from Atlanta to New York, uh, Girls for Gender Equity was my first sort of foray into community organizing uh, outside of the community that I was sort of, you know, born into and raised in. Um, so for five years, GGE really um, shaped my perspective on the world, um, and me and Joanne Smith, the founder, um, you know, put a lot of sort of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears into building the organization into what it is today, um, clearly with a lot of other people. There were a lot of teachers who were a part of that. Um, there were a lot of students and parents who were a part of that. Um, so it was, it's a really amazing opportunity when the feminist press approached us, actually approached Joanne, um, and said, you know, we've been following the work that you're doing, and we think that it's time to put this into a book. Initially, it was going to be um, sort of a 20-page guide to um, how to combat sexual harassment in the New York City public schools. And upon having these conversations, it became very clear that there was a larger need and that what the book could really be is um, a model that can be used around uh, the United States in different contexts, in different cities, not to say, you know, here's what GGE does, follow this to the letter, but for, for other organizations and other youth activists and other allies to, to take the model that GGE uses, see what fits, see what doesn't fit, um, and use it as a sort of jumping jumping off place. Because one of the things that we really wished that we had, um, you know, in, in the good old days or whatever, was we really wished that we had this sort of model. You know, the sort of community organizing rule number one is don't reinvent the wheel. There's no reason to start from scratch when there is an enormous history, when there are other organizations, other individuals who have been doing this work that have laid, um, you know, a really solid foundation from you know, from which you can you can do your own work and figure out how to move forward. Um, so you know, when when Hey Shorty was published, um, I had been doing some freelance writing, and um, Joanne said, you know, we really don't have a, a solid publicity plan. Since you know the you know blogosphere, since you know how online media works, why don't you and I work together so that we can create a plan to get that out there? Um, so you know, a part of what we did was set up a website called HeyShortyOnTheRoad.com um, to basically be a place where we can have um, you know the tour dates, the press that was was. Uh, uh, reviewing the book and interviews um, with the, the authors and the young women who are doing the organizing today, um, that we could fundraise for this tour. So, you know, we've been anywhere from Seattle to Atlanta to, you know, here in New York City, Philadelphia, and that takes money. Um, and when you're a grassroots organization, it's really helpful to be able to utilize some of these new tools that are emerging, like crowdfunding, you know, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, um, to put your your sort of narrative online and show people not not just in the immediate geography of where you're located, but you know, outside of that, 
this is what we're doing. We want to partner with other um, organizations and other people in other places, and we want to do that by um, you know, utilizing the tool that we've created um, to build those, those alliances. Um, so part of what has happened on the tour is, for example, in Philadelphia, we partnered with um, Holly Curl, who's the author of Stop Street Harassment. Uh, we also partnered with Hollaback Philly, and we partnered with Nuela Cabral, who's a filmmaker and activist in Philly. All of them are local activists who are doing work in their own communities around ending gender-based violence. Uh, so we think that instead of just sort of going around and talking about what GGE is doing, um, we're really using it as a way that we can build solidarity and, um, you know, promote the work of, of the organizations that are working on the ground in those particular cities and communities. So as far as a, a failure, I mean, I fail all the time. <laughs> like, it's pretty much a daily occurrence, right? Um, and I think that that's something that's a really great opportunity for those of us who are involved in activism, particularly in, you know, new media and sort of online activism, because it's a new um, tool and it's a new thing that we're all trying to figure out. How does it work and how does it, um, you know, coalesce with the work that we've been doing? And then how do we sort of see ourselves in it? So I'm a social worker, and I'm constantly sort of evaluating myself and reevaluating myself and being critical of myself and being critical of other people, <laughs> right? So I think that sort of one of the biggest failures that I've had with writing online is being mad arrogant, you know, like when you're an activist, you kind of have to have a certain sense of arrogance because you're coming at it from this place of like, I know, like I know things need to change and I know how they need to change. Um, and that while it's a good thing, uh, you know, it also hinders the work in some ways if you don't keep um, empathy at the center, right? If you don't sort of constantly um, try to put yourself in the shoes of other people who you're engaging with, and if you don't try to constantly sort of mine strategies that are different from yours for the places where those, where those similarities are, you know? Like, if you focus too much on the places of divergence, then it really is, is damaging to both, you know, us as individuals, but also, also the sort of collective us, you know, as a movement. Um, and then in terms of the question that I'm sort of, you know, working through, there, there are clearly a lot of them, but one of them that was um, raised in, in this really amazing book called The Revolution Starts at Home, uh, which I absolutely wish that, that you all check out, is how to not be seduced into complicity with oppression in order to simply meet my own needs and desires. Um, how to tell the difference between my own needs and desires and our needs and desires. Um, how to lift while I climb and not just among my friends and family and immediate community. Um, and then how to recognize and value everyone's contribution while still maintaining a critical point of view and a radical sense of love. Awesome. 
I, th I feel like we need to get those up on the screen. Each of those questions is so valuable. Um, let's, I think that's, it's a great time now to move to Veronica Pinto, who has worked as a community organizer for over 13 years and joined the Hollaback team in June 2011 as the org organization's second staff member. Um, that's the other theme you'll find at many of these online advocacy organizations is you think there's like a whole, people will say like, well, maybe you guys could pass this around the feministing office. And I'm like, ha ha, the office that doesn't exist, right? Um, so many of kind of the output of what these organizations are doing sometimes masks the fact that there's like one or two really um, robust, excited, hardworking people behind it. And I think um, Veronica is an example of that, right? So second staff member at Hollaback, which has had such a huge effect um, in so many ways. In her role as international movement coordinator, she provides hands-on assistance and training to activists around the world who are interested in bringing the movement to end street harassment home. Inspired by the pack of community organizing women that raised her in Ecuador, Veronica's organizing experiences span across issues and include organizing youth, working with homeless, advocating for animals, spearheading fundraisers to help build schools for girls in Central Asia, and promoting equality for the LGBTQ community. Prior to Hollaback, she worked as a development associate at Legal Services NYC and a special events intern at the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. She graduated from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte with a bachelor's in international studies. Veronica. Thank you. Make it sound so glamorous. <laughs> um, thanks for having me. I uh, have been with Hollaback for three months, so... Not very long, but yeah, I'm the second staff person. So basically, it's Emily May, executive director and co-founder, and myself behind our laptops for eight to ten hours a day, just typing away. Um, so a thrilling success that we've had at Hollaback um, is that we've launched 37 sites worldwide. Um, we are in India, we're in Australia, New Zealand, South America, um, Central America, and Really, the success was possible through a combination of the three elements that we're talking about today. It happened through writing, new media, and activism, and how those three kind of met, and this movement of Hollaback began. Um, and the, the writing piece is really about storytelling, and that's how movements have always begun, is by people sharing their stories with each other. Um, except that for us... It happened online, and obviously the internet is this amazing tool that we have so that um, it's just a new way to really get our audience all over the world, not just in one um, space. Um, new media uh, using the internet, it has entirely new implications. Um, now it's not just that one person has a mic, we all have a mic. Um, you know, if you say something that you like and you're tweeting it out to your network. And that's a really powerful tool. Um, and how does that meet with activism? You know, how do we go from writing and sharing our stories to using this, this internet tool to really making change happen on the ground? Um, well, activism is basically like-minded people coming together about issues that they're passionate about and making social change happen, making the revolution go down, like we say at Hollaback. Um, so, you know, Hollaback, it's, it's a movement of storytelling through social networking, through blogging, through telling our stories. Um, but, and this leads me to the next question, what is our one 
failure. Our one failure was that in 2005, when Hollaback NYC began, um, there was interest all over the world to start Hollaback movements. So what Emily May did at the time was um, send people a startup packet, which was really a manual of how you can start a Hollaback in your community. Um, well, 20 sites started in the States. That was really exciting. But after a year, only three or four remained. So then was the question, what, you know, what happened here? Why didn't they keep the movement going? And then we realized that there was a need for a movement. It wasn't just about blogging and telling our stories. There was a need for action and for activism and for making something happen. Um, and so really what we did was just respond to that movement. How? By providing ongoing support. Um, as the international movement coordinator, I not only train these activists all over the world, I give them love, support, encouragement, whatever they need um, to make the revolution happen. A lot of our site leaders do it um, in just a team of one, or a lot of times they're just alone, and they're working in India or in Istanbul, and they need support from us. And they need to feel that they are part of a community, which is challenging when you're doing this uh, purely through the internet and Skyping. Um, so that's a challenge that we have now. Um, and the one question that I'm still living my way into is, um, well, we had a group of young girls come to the Hollaback offices this last summer. I think I had been at work, I think it was my second week. And uh, she asked me, how did you become such a strong, powerful woman? And I was a little daunted by the question because I had just started working at Hollaback. I'd never really considered myself a, a female leader. Um, I'd always just done activism um, in whatever capacity I, I wanted to or chose to. Um, so that's the question that I'm still living my way into. I thought, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, but you know what I realize now is that I'm the type of person that I prefer being behind the scenes training activists and helping them and encouraging them and giving them love and support. Um, and that is my way of, that, that is what makes me a leader, I guess. But that's a little more, um, a little easier for me to handle, to look at it that way. Um, what I'm good at is elevating the voices of our site leaders. And that's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy training these upcoming leaders and giving them the tools that they need to make change happen in their communities. Um, so that is the, the one question that I think I'm, I'm, I'm answering as I go along in this work. But yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Isn't it? Yes. I'm just struck by how refreshing it is to hear a woman on a panel say, what I'm good at is, and then complete the sentence with no qualifiers. That was awesome. Um, amazing modeling for all of us. Um, we'll finish off here with Susanna Hung, um, who teaches writing and cultural studies to undergraduates at New York University in the liberal studies program. She was graduated from Sarah Lawrence College with an MFA in creative writing and has been an artist in residence at the Hall Farm Center in Vermont and a writer in residence with teachers and writers collaborative in, in NYC. Susanna was a mentor with Girls Right Now for two years, which if you've never gone to a Girls Right Now reading, 
you must go. Their events are so incredibly inspiring. I am on the advisory board, so I you know, have no objectivity here, but um, I, I've really been affected deeply and in a long-term way by some of the voices that I've heard, the, the very young voices that I've heard through Girls Right Now events, so check them out. Um, so she's been a mentor there for two years and currently teaches essay writing workshops for Girls College Bound, a program of Girls Right Now, and serves on the advisory board as well. So take it away, Susanna. So thank you for having me, and thank you to the wonderful panel here. I'm just so honored to be with all these amazing women. Um, girls right now, I, I'm having a love affair with girls right now, and it's <laughs> lasted for over seven years, and I hope that it will last many more. And I just wanted to recognize Jessica Wells Hassan, who's here. She's our development director, and Mary Roma, who is one of our former PAC members um, and former mentors. And the thing I love most about girls right now is the community. The community is an amazing group of women, and these women are from age 13 to age, I don't want to out our most senior mentor, but probably in her 70s. And 83, 83, thank you, 83. So from 13 to 83, and once a month, these women come together and they tell their stories, and it is Amazing. I can't use that adjective enough. Amazing. Um, but what we do at Girls Right Now is we nurture um, how to tell our stories um, on the most basic level with pen and paper, with our mouths, um, on the computer, on blogs. Um, but it's really helping women, young women, and also um, professional women writers how to tell our story. Um, uh, the success and failure I'm going to share with you is kind of a mashup. The same, it's the same experience. Um, I co-facilitate the college essay writing workshop that we do at Girls Right Now every summer. Um, we have a series of workshops where young high school, uh, underserved high school girls come and they can. Uh, practice and learn how to write their college application essay. And um, in one of the workshops that we led, we had a young uh, writer. She was, in, she was a sophomore in high school. And we didn't realize this at the time, but she, it was her second time taking the workshop with us. And what came out in the workshop and her writing uh, was an experience she had when she was in the fifth grade that she had never shared with anyone until this time. She wrote about um, how just after September 11th, she was bullied on the way home from school and was bullied weekly for being Muslim. And kids from her school would follow her home, and she was walking home after school, and they would taunt her and say, you know, you're a filthy Arab, uh, is how she said it. And, and it was a very, she had a very visceral reaction, as did we, um, the workshop leaders and the workshop listeners, about how, how primal this, it, it, it was coming through in the writing. And she, she welled up with emotion and she started to cry. And the workshop leaders, my partner Erica and I, were so proud of her, first of all, for, being, for feeling empowered enough to 
to share this story that happened to her. And I should also give you some context. She wasn't Arab American. She was a black Muslim. And so that also raised a lot of other complexities and um, dynamics that she was being taunted and associated um, with being Middle Eastern. But but for her to write about this experience and to feel safe enough to write about this experience, we felt was very powerful. And so for the flip side of this, um, her being overwhelmed with emotion and her crying about it scared some of the community leaders that were running the um, community program that we were doing our this partnering with. And... And it, it, was, it was a scary experience for them because they felt that um, how do you support someone? How do you support someone who uh, is processing an experience or maybe doesn't know how to process the experience? Um, and so it was a very interesting moment because on the one hand, this young woman was... She was empowered. She had a voice. And yet at the same time, that voice was overwhelming to herself, but it was also scary to people in her community. And so at Girls Right Now, we want to be a safe space for young women to share those stories that they don't feel comfortable or empowered enough to share with other people. We also want them to have the tools for telling their stories, their tools, um, whether those tools be the mechanics of writing or understanding genres, um, or the tools be technology or electronic or, or ways to use their stories to empower other people. So um, I guess what am I living my way into, Courtney had asked us. Um, I feel that our community is growing and there's a need for more um, more more communities like girls right now and one of the our challenges is how do we reach and how do we serve more girls because there are many more girls in New York City and across the country who could benefit from this kind of community but how do we do that we don't want to compromise um, the strength of our program which is meeting personally one-on-one -on -one with our girls once a week in, in our paired mentor relationship um, and the genre-based workshops that we do once a week. Um, so we, we spend a lot of time and we're very deeply invested in who our young mentees are. And, and we don't want, I mean, we take very seriously this responsibility of, of nurturing um, nurturing their selves and their self-esteem and empowering them to become strong women and to become the people that are on the panel today. So um, we're, we're trying to figure out how to grow and how to um, reach as many girls as we can in a responsible way. Great. Thank you, Susanna. I should also mention that um, Girls Right Now is started by a Barnard alum as well. Um, so one more Barnard connection here. Um, so we're actually running a little behind because we got started a little late. So I'm only going to ask one question then turn it over to you. So start to be thinking of what um, questions, insights you want to bring to the table. And I really ask that you ask 
ask a question, brief, one-sentence question, because my priority is to hear as many people in the room as possible. I hope that's everyone's priority, so let's just sort of honor each other's voices by really asking one brief question. Um, My question for you is, how do you all, and anyone can feel free to answer this who feels called to, how do you find the balance in your writing and new media work between kind of shoring up and strengthening and doing all the kind of solidarity work we were talking about with folks who already adopt some of the same kind of worldview as we do and changing hearts and minds. Because one of my concerns is that we seem to, and this is obviously speaking in huge generalities, spend quite a bit of our time as feminists doing online work really focusing on um, kind of talking within our own community as opposed to really reaching out and doing some of the more kind of difficult work of convincing folks who don't necessarily see, for example, street harassment in the same way we do, or um, some of the stories that kind of surface through the Girls Right Now work, like getting those out to folks who don't normally hear them. So how do you find that balance in your own work? It's an interesting question for me because my community does is not sort of representative of on what's going on online. You know, like my community, my family doesn't identify as feminist. I mean, that is something that has been a struggle that we've worked through in terms of, you know, I grew up in a rural community, working class in Georgia, and that comes with some of the stereotypical things that people associate with that. I mean, my uh, state is the state that just two days ago executed a man who was probably innocent, um, Troy Davis. And I think that you know, my community brings a a legacy of sort of opposition or perceived opposition to the values that, you know, that I would like to see in the world um, or enacted more in the world. At the same time, I think that I spent a lot of, um, you know, my my youth (laughs) or whatever. Um, I'm only 32, so it's not like I'm old or whatever. Um, But anyway... (laughs) Um, You know, I spent a lot of time sort of, you know, doing what you were saying in terms of, like, you have to think like me. And if you don't think like me, then, like, we have problems. Um, And that was the problem. Um, It wasn't my community, my family that was the problem. Um, So I think that I've spent a lot of time trying to recognize the, the value within my community and trying to sort of, um, you know, make space for that and to um, reincorporate that into myself because, you know, I think that we we hold these um, sort of oppressions and standards in ourselves, in our bodies, in our minds, in our way of moving forward. And one of the things that I did was, like, push that aside. Like, that is wrong. You know, that is not the way that I want to do things. And in doing so, I didn't... Um, provide the space to see what things were right about that, you know? So, for example, um, when I was 17, and this was, like, when I was just becoming, you know, aware of sort of social consciousness, um, there was a guy at school who, you know, was on the football team and was all kinds of sexually harassing me and, you know, like, trying to find my phone number and calling me and doing all of these things. Um, and my stepfather went up to the place that he worked and basically threatened to kick his fucking ass. <laughs> and I was, like, mortified because I was like, how can you do that? That makes me look like I'm some, you know, weak little girl who can't take care of myself and stuff. But it's like, 
that was how he showed solidarity, you know what I'm saying? And so that was something that I totally did not appreciate at the time. And now I appreciate because we, we all come up with our own ways of, you know, surviving in a world that um, can be really traumatizing to us. So for me, you know, the struggle is less like, how do I, you know, bring feminism to the world? And more, how do I bring, like, my people to feminism? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a great reframing. Anyone else want to chime in? Yeah, Liana. Um, for me, my community is young people, and particularly high school students. And I think when high school students take a feminism course, they are either taking it because they see themselves already as feminists, or they want to know more about it, or they have heard some of the kind of myths um, about feminism that they want kind of deconstructed or at least disabused in some way. Um, sometimes it's very personal. I've had students say that they're taking a feminism course because um, their mother is a single mom and he's a boy and wants to know how to support his mom through single motherhood. Um, and so sometimes that, those personal moments are actually the access point to changing hearts and minds. Um, and I was really struck by what you said, Veronica, about storytelling, which is I think this is a, a way to get the two mm -hmm. links that I brought in. One of the things that I've been able to do with young people is to have them see how they can leverage their voices for political action. And one of the things that, um, this is actually their feminist blog called After the Third Power that um, actually feministing editors Miriam Perez and Chloe Angel helped them to create a student of mine last year was asked to uh, present her testimony on street harassment at a New York City uh, Council on Street Harassment. And the reason why she was asked to do this is because I invited Emily May from Hollaback, the executive director of Hollaback, to come to the class to talk about how she uses mobile technology to do this. And um, this student, Grace Tobin, um, she wound up going to, I wound up going with her. Um, to this council hearing, and she gave her testimony. And she wrote about it afterwards, and she said, being able to share my story was something I never thought I would be able to do. I never thought it mattered enough to be shared or heard by anyone, let alone a city council. I think that through delivering my testimony, I was able to find a certain closure to the experiences by the constant harassment I experienced from men on the streets and subway every day. By spreading the word, I'm making a difference, which is something I never thought I was capable of doing. Um, and then kind of combining that with the media work she got to do by being interviewed by CBS, which is a little further down on the page. She's actually in the first 50 seconds of this clip. There's a lot of, it, it's, she just didn't go on CBS. That there was a whole trajectory and a journey that she had to go through in order to reach that point where she could share her story. The, the course starts out with teaching theories of intersectionality, race, class, gender, sexuality. The students write their own personal stories of living at the intersections. Then we do this GEMS project. Then they, there's a, there's a kind of trajectory that I'm trying to lead them through in terms of really finding out who they are as political and social change agents and change makers. And so by the time Grace is on CBS, um, there's been a lot of work that's been done in the classroom to get her to that point to be able to leverage her voice, which she never even knew that she had. Um, and she was able to blog about it in various different platforms, including the Hollaback site and the, the class blog site. So I think, for me, the solidarity work with partnering with organizations, the Changing Hearts and Minds is about changing young people's minds that they can actually do something that will make a difference.
Mm. Awesome. And Veronica, did you want to weigh in? Uh, yeah, just I think that, you know, for us, especially when we're a very small nonprofit and there's only one or two people on staff, it's really hard to take that next step to change the hearts and minds because we're so focused on what we're doing with our team, with our uh, constituents. Um, but I think especially with young people, it's so important to give them action, um, right? I mean, it's great that we can talk about these things and blog about them, and Hollaback is a great platform um, for people to share their stories and find their voice and find a sense of empowerment by sharing their stories. Um, but what I also love about Hollaback is that we give them action. We say... Okay, now go, you know, spread the word in your community. And so it becomes, that's how it becomes, it goes from a blog and a story on a computer screen to real action on the streets in your community. Um, and I think that is really powerful. I mean, another thing that we're doing that kind of goes along with the action piece is engaging bystanders, and a lot of that is engaging men and getting men involved in this in this conversation about street harassment. Um, but... That's too long. So, but yeah, I think it's really important to, you know, connect action with our stories. Awesome. Let's, oh, and Courtney, I also wanted oh, go to for add, um, for girls right now, I mean, Ileana, it sounds wonderful what you're doing in the classroom. Um, and your students are so lucky to have this opportunity. Um, and also with Hollaback, the opportunity for more, um, for more youth to do this. Uh, girls right now, for some of our girls don't necessarily have that opportunity in the classroom. And so what's wonderful about the organization is that we provide that opportunity and also a place for them to learn how to um, present themselves in a professional way. And as Courtney had mentioned, uh, we do have a reading series, chapters, and we also have an anthology, which it is in the book form, which um, places the mentor and the mentee's pieces side by side. And so... In the community, the intergenerational community, um, the, our young mentees learn from, um, you know, our seasoned mentors um, how to be activists and also how to be active and how to give themselves opportunities to get their voice out in the world. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of your stories today. I had one question, and I'm just interested to know what blogs, what feminist blogs you guys are following, because there's so many things out there that we don't know, and I'm just interested to know where you, you are getting your inspiration and in your stories. So um, let's just go down the line. Just spit some of your favorite blogs or, or folks to follow out. Go ahead. Uh, I would say The Feminist Wire, um, Color Lines, um, the Women's International Perspective. Awesome. Eliana, you want to throw some out? Um, there's so many out there. Um, I really like um, the Women's Media Center, uh, Feministing, obviously. The F-Bomb is a team feminist blog. Um, and Julie now goes to Barnard. And she, and she is Julie Barnard. here? No, Julie. Julie Z. Okay. Um, I think I'll end there. Okay. Uh, feministing uh, Jezebel is another one that I follow. Um, the Current Consciousness, which is written by um, a gay Iranian man, um, and he writes a lot about women's issues, including street harassment and violence towards women. Uh, the Current Consciousness, and his name is Yashir. Um, everything I was going to mention has been mentioned. So <laughs> I, I can throw out a few more. The, cr the Crunk Feminist Collective, mm -hmm. Radical Doula, Feminist, 
uh, following Hugo Schweizer. I think his blog is just his name, but he's going to do a weekly column now at Jezebel, so that'll be cool. And he's also an educator, I think, in, in doing some really interesting intersectional work at the college level, but um, a, a great guy doing that kind of work. Um, and I'm sure there are a million more. For those who aren't super familiar with blogs, the best thing you can do is go to one of these blogs we've mentioned, and then there's a thing called a blog roll, which will be usually sort of on the right side or the left side of the main page. And it, it's just a list of blogs that that blog also follows and thinks are, are worthwhile. So it's a great way, if you're new to sort of the blogosphere, to get a sense, um, to get a sense of kind of the, the whole landscape and, and just sort of play around and look at different places and, and give that attention, kind of spread it around because that's the best way for all of us to learn. Yes? You could, yeah. Thank you. Where does the money come from? That was the question. I've actually been spending a lot of time lately, um, thanks in part to my friend Helen Kornblum, who's in the room, thinking about this question. As I'm leaving blogging at Feministing, I'm spending um, a chunk of time really thinking strategically about the future of the feminist movement and the unsustainability of our current models of online new media feminist work. So I'd love to hear from any of you. I know most of the folks on the panel are at nonprofits specifically, right? That that's the structure you're working under. How's that structure working for you? Is it hard to raise money doing online and writing work? Um, share with us. I'll go first. Um, it's very challenging. Um, we are very lucky in that we get some funding from a couple of foundations. Um, and most of our money actually comes from individual donors. Um, we, For us, crowdfunding has been incredibly successful. It's also um, very time-consuming because you're raising little bits of money um, from a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it's challenging, and I do wonder, you know, how sustainable this movement is going to be without having the funding for it. Anyone else? Well, similarly, Girls Right Now is very uh, grassroots oriented, and so we have 150 volunteers, active volunteers. We do. We are lucky enough to have a full-time staff of five, um, and Jessica is our full-time fundraiser. Um, but our full-time staff has grown to five only recently. Um, for a long time, our full-time staff was a staff of one, which was our executive director and founder and co-founder, Maya Nussbaum. And um, we brought our program director on board, Megan McNamara, has been with the organization for about five years now. So it's only recently, within the last... Five, I'd say three to three to five years that our staff has grown. So, uh, and girls right now uh, fundraises with foundations and also with individuals, but we're um, a volunteer-driven organization. I can say something from a teacher perspective, which is that there really isn't a lot of money for teachers to do this kind of work, um, and that I think is another kind of failure. Um, a friend of mine just sent me, she's the, Shannon Cuddle, she's the executive director of the Safe Schools Action Network, and she just sent me a link recently from the Myra Satker Foundation, and there's an actual one or $2,000 grant for teachers who are doing gender equity work with their students. That's a, obviously a very small amount of money, but it's something that at least helps some teachers. And I um, just returned from a distinguished Fulbright in Mexico, and it's a very brand new Fulbright. Um, it's only in its third year, and I was in a part of the second cohort. 
And it's not what most people think of as a Fulbright for teachers. Most Fulbrights for teachers are the teacher exchange. Um, but this is a very different Fulbright for, teacher, for teachers who are interested in doing research, um, which is very unusual. Um, and so my six months in Mexico was focused on uh, essentially interviewing LGBT youth in university high schools there and public schools there um, on their experience of gender and sexuality, discrimination, bullying, harassment. And I also asked them their vision of how they would change their schools to be safer and more inclusive. So that six months was a tremendous gift from the State Department. Um, someone there recognized teachers are also researchers, and teachers need to use their research in order to move their work forward. And I think that just as much as scholars and professors and nonprofits need funding, teachers need funding as well. Yeah, I think it's all, it really is, thank you, Ileana, I think it really is the next kind of one of many labor questions in the feminist movement, right? Because a lot of this work has not seen as actual labor, when in fact, it, it takes a lot of work to keep these sites going. I mean, at, at Feministing, we are posting seven blog posts a day, in addition to editing the community site, which allows anyone's voice to be heard, in addition to all of the like technological background stuff that goes on. And it's interesting, there's been a shift, I think, we've, we've been trying to think, are we a media company? Are we an advocacy organization? And I think we're both and neither, so that makes it very hard to figure out what is the economic model. How do you convince funders that this is real work, this is real labor that needs to be funded, or if we're going to go the nonprofit model, which is something I think people really should consider when we look at some of our peer organizations, what does that look like? Um, a really interesting contrasting example right now is change.org. Is everyone familiar with that organization where you sign the petition that they put up? That organization was started with an incubation grant that a man got, and then he has now turned it into a $5 million company. This is like in the last few years, and he's doing that by selling email addresses to other progressive organizations or politicians. Um, I, I would be so shocked if any feminist new media person ever thought of, of asking for something like that, of innovating that model. Whatever you think about selling email addresses, which could be an interesting conversation in itself, it's just so, it's, I think it's so telling for us to kind of look at what are other people in comparable positions doing um, that we're not even considering. And how do we sort of convince the funding community that perhaps we need to set up some sort of development or incubation grants for some of these awesome feminist new media pro projects. Um, two more questions, I think, we're going to squeeze in here. Since all the new media is based on the computer and millions of people in the world don't have access to computers, how are we dealing with that? Great. So the question's about what's often called the digital divide, right? Anyone on the panel want to speak to that? I mean, one of the things that has always been really frustrating um, for, for me working primarily in low-income communities and communities of color is that both their, the access is not there. Um, so, you know, anything that is solely online based is absolutely missing out on a, a huge um, chunk of the population, not only in the U.S., but also around the, around the globe. Um, but also that even if, even if certain groups have access, that doesn't mean they're using it in the same ways that you are. Um, so, for example, uh, young people are all about, you know, texting, but that doesn't mean they're reading blogs. Um, and so 
I think that that's absolutely one of the one of the challenges, and I'm really glad that you raised that question. Um, one of the things that GGE does is to try to incorporate these kinds of technologies into the young women's leadership and uh, grassroots organizing programs so that, because, you know, this is sort of the way that things are moving, and when you, um, when you can utilize that tool as both a way that you can sort of, you know, educate or empower others, but then also be educated yourself, I mean, there are things that, that young people are doing with technology that I've absolutely learned from that um, I would not have, have learned otherwise. And I think that it really presents an opportunity to, um, you know, to lift someone into a position of, of leader and educator who is used to being in a position of sort of passive consumer um, of knowledge that's, you know, spit at you. Courtney, I was very much struck by your introduction of this panel and that horrific um, billboard. Mm -hmm. um, and I celebrate you and the work that happened to get that removed here. I just relocated um, to, Las to New York City from Los Angeles, where I spent most of my time there as a PhD student in Claremont. But because of my work, I needed to move into LA, where a different version of that board exists today. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of found myself wondering, um, very much as what Mandy was just talking about, maybe in, in South Central LA where technology, the use of technology, the coming together in sort of this, visceral, uh, uh, this virtual world doesn't maybe happen all the time for all people in that community, they would not necessarily know that there's a movement in New York to get rid of the board, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering about, it's again about solidarity and how people in say certain locations like New York City reach out and how do you do that really to get a board taken down in New York? Well, guess what, it, it's in LA and it, it's still there you know, today. And yeah, I'll give a quick answer and then give it over to the panel. I think this, is, this gets back to the sustainability piece that I think the local connections through this, you know, Gloria Steinem, I was talking to her a few days ago about this issue, and she said it's like the women's center in the sky is like the new sort of internet. And so how do we get this women's center in the sky to really reach all of these local nodes in a more effective way? And to me, that's going to take some real strategic thinking and some real labor around how do you organize locally into a big national and maybe even international movement. Um, I was uh, interviewing Moms Rising about this issue, and they actually, their, their membership, if you haven't seen Moms Rising, it's a good thing to check out. It, exactly reflects the census in America, which is really interesting. Um, and they've done this new initiative to get local meetups, in-person meetups all over the country. So they'll feed issues like this. You know, in their case, they wouldn't probably feed this particular issue, but they're working on sort of labor stuff and equal pay for equal work and childcare. So they're feeding that to these local meetups that are in person that don't depend on what they usually use, which is the internet. So I think that's one model that we might all look at as a really interesting way to shore up solidarity. They are, not coincidentally, the best funded online advocacy organization doing feminist work right now. So it's interesting to note that they were able to to um, you know, sort of create that with those sorts of conditions. Um, anyone else on the panel want to uh, speak to the solidarity piece, Veronica? Sure, yeah. Um, because we are international, we have sites um, worldwide, and not all of our site leaders' um, communities have access to the internet or smartphones. Um, so this is an issue that we 
that we have seen arise. But what I admire is that the site leaders get really creative. So instead of seeing it as something that hinders them, they see it as an opportunity to be innovative and creative in their communities. So, for instance, um, one of our site leaders uh, started doing mud painting, mud stenciling about street harassment um, as a way to kind of start this conversation about street harassment. Um, we have other site leaders who um, pass out post-its at bars and say, tell me your story of street harassment. So they get really creative with this, and that's why the groundwork is so important, because and that's why at Hollaback, we don't have one model that works for everyone. We basically say, we're going to give you the tools, and you know how to address street harassment in your community. Because we don't live there, and we don't know. Um, so thankfully for us, they do get really creative with this, which is really um, inspiring. So one of the um, new projects that uh, Joanne Smith, the founder and executive director of Girls for Gender Equity, um, is involved in, she is one of the first to be in a cohort um, for a project called Move to End Violence. Um, it's a 10-year initiative of the Novo Foundation. Uh, and basically what the project does is bring together uh, leaders who are working in the movement to end gender-based violence to support each other, to share knowledge, share resources, and uh, commit to a nationwide strategizing on how to end gender-based violence. So I think that that is a really great example of what you're saying in terms of a, a nationwide solidarity and strategizing um, tactic. So in the spirit of linking our, our writing and our voices in action, I just want to say that if you've been inspired by these uh, folks on this panel, as I have, really write down right now, what is one action you're going to take to support them? Are you going to buy Mandy's awesome book? Are you going to send a donation to girls right now or, or holler back? Are you going to send five people Ileana's feminist uh, teacher blog and ask the teachers in your local schools, why aren't we talking about gender? There's this woman doing really interesting stuff. Maybe we should try to do it too. So literally, please write down something that you promised to do, having heard these these incredible activist voices. Um, and thank you so much for your voices and your solidarity to keep the theme going. Um, I think we'll be hanging out a little bit um, to talk. I actually have a flight I have to catch, so I'm going to be sort of the rude one who goes towards the door. But please be in touch with us via Twitter or email or other forms that work for you. And thanks so much for your attention.